from Anchor FM, this is Etch the Edges, where we climb the steep cliffs of the divide, the issues that separate us from the right and the left, and we do the hard work of closing that divide. Find the common ground we know we all share. Hi, I'm B.S. Brown, your host, and together we will etch the edges. America has often been at the crossroads, and yet here we are again. What do we do? And how do we do it? Together, let's get into it. Our purpose? To do the work. To truly peel away at the extremes, for it's the extremes, the extremes that divide us. The tail is wagging the dog. Small groups of people with outsized voices are commanding the stage, and the rest of us? Well, the rest of us suffer for it. It's time for all that to change. Let's lean into discomfort. Let's have the hard conversations, and together, let's etch the edges. Welcome back to another episode of Etch the Edges, the show where we do the work of leaning deep into discomfort in order to try our best to close the ideological divide. And often enough, we find that the need to do that, the drive to do that, the requirement to do that is deeply rooted in the stories, the telling of stories, the answering of questions, not in an environment that is, you know, painful or exacerbating or something that, you know, it's just going to make it hard for us. We've got enough of that. All we have to do is look around and see that the house is on fire. So what we're going to do is put a little water on the house, calm it down and have an intentional conversation about the things we know can help us to make our world that much better. And today, in order to lean into that, we have a very special guest. His name is Mark Went. He's a personal coach, an advisor, and he's got a wealth of experience to share with us today. Mark, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Derek. I really love this subject, and I'm looking forward to the conversation absolutely thank you thank you so we're just going to jump right on in mark first you know if folks go to your website and of course we'll have that uh listed for folks to go check you out they'll see that you tell the story of you know having gone through certain experiences that have led you to where you are which makes you an expert on some of these topics can you just share with the audience what's your life story what's what's it been like how did you become this version of mark it all started in Denver, Colorado, when I was born in Porter Hospital, quote, sanitarium. So I was literally born in a mental health facility, which is also a hospital. My mom wasn't mentally ill. It wasn't that much of a part of it, but I think it's kind of ironic. And I like to tell that part of the story because I like humor. I think it's fun to start with humor. Um, my parents were put together young and didn't know what they were doing. And in 1969, they moved from Colorado to be part of the counterculture revolution in Berkeley, California. So in my early years as a young child, I was immersed in what at the time was a revolutionary way of being, a new idea of how do we do this thing called life in America. And as a result of living in Berkeley and the Bay Area as a child, I was exposed to all new kinds of thought, all new paradigms for the time. It was brilliant and challenging in so many different ways. 
Um, one of the key things was this idea that we were going to totally change the way America worked and we we're going to take it to the man. And the idea of leftist politics was all around me, which was odd because my grandfather on my mother's side was an Air Force colonel. And he was married to a Republican, but he was a Democrat. So right away, the context of my life has this um, multiple polarities within it, which allowed me to grow and see things from the middle, from a different pathway forward. Uh, I grew up going to high school in Berkeley, and I was one of those new men that was had been raised in the principles of anti-racism and feminism and this idea that we were going to totally recreate the world. And I took that to heart and I quickly became disillusioned because the story that my parents and her, their culture had concocted in Berkeley didn't actually fit what I was observing in the world around me. There was still bro culture. There were still, um, you know, frat guys in, in Berkeley and, there was a lot of, of people that were really progressive and trying to change things. And there was also backward racist and, you know, capitalist, you know, people who were basically at that point in time supporting the old guard. And I was part of the new guard, and at least I thought I was. Um, and I got in lots of trouble. I was given way too much freedom as a teenager. Um, I won't go into the details, but suffice it to say, it wasn't uncommon for me to be skating around Berkeley on, at two in the morning on Saturday night on my skateboard. I had built a rock and roll studio and was already playing rock and roll with my friends. We had this idea that there was a new way of organizing society. And the 60s ethos was a big, powerful part of that. We were going to end war. We we're going to have this peace and prosperity through, you know, multiculturalism, through knowing each other in a deeper way. And one of the great things about Berkeley was um, being, a, a, you know, a white person, I met a lot of people of color and Latinx people. And I was, I went to this place called La Pena Cultural Center, where there was a lot of salsa and Afro-Cuban music. And so, uh, my uncle ran um, one of the Bay Area's first reggae radio shows. Nice. So growing up, not only was I exposed to the hippie movement, but I was also exposed to all kinds of cultural arts that gave me a perspective on the world that was not typical of American perspective. And so as I progressed through high school, I ended up not going to college initially. I went to work in a restaurant because my father really was not someone who delivered financially. And my mom and dad were married and divorced to each other twice. Wow. And over the course of that, my mom took on a lot of work to, to raise myself and my two sisters. And I was the oldest. And so I learned a lot about, you know, caring for my family as a young man. Principles of, you know, I went to work when I was 15. I had a restaurant job on the weekends, and that's partially how I paid to have electric guitars. You know, I contributed to the family, but I also made money. And I was very privileged, even though we were poor, um, as far as w the white class goes. But I was also introduced to people who I had no idea who they were at the time. Like, I met Angela Davis at one point. And, wow. you know, I met people that I'm, you know, I was 14, and my mom used to let, 
um, a gay man drive me to, to school in the morning. Someone who was just happened to be going that direction. And, you know, my parents had done group therapy leaders work and they, you know, I met all kinds of different people. And so in can we, one can way, we, I don't, I don't mean to interrupt you, Mark, but I just want to pause with a little emphasis on that because again, you know, uh, and you hit a couple of points that I wanted to pause on, but I didn't sure. want to break your stream. But on that one, given the heightened environment, I just wanted to ping it a little bit. Yeah. So your mom let a gay man drive you to school. That's right. She trusted that man. That meant that man was fun loving. And when she was having a hard time, he offered her emotional support. And getting me to school was one less thing she had to deal with. Right. And I'll be honest, I, I had, I could feel his desire for me, but the man never crossed the line. I knew what was happening and I made it clear to him that, you know, I wasn't, that's not how I'm wired. I'm very much a heterosexual white male, mm -hmm. but I was raised not to, for that to not be a problem. And it wasn't a problem. That's powerful. That is powerful. And I just don't want us to lose, you know, visibility and insight into the fact that, you know, even though you could tell there was some energy there where he had a sense of desire, the two of you were human beings. And just like with any given situation between two human beings, there's the sense, the emotion, the give and take, and the critical consideration of who you are as an individual and what you want or may not want, and to respect that. To respect that because we are each our own humans in our own right and you never had an issue you never had an issue because of that that's powerful and i think so many folks need to hear that in today's world that years later from when that happened to you folks are still having problems and folks will hear that and really go wait wait a minute what 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 he, he took him to school well, yeah, there was way more than that. Like the the parties my parents threw, I mean, it would shock and um, make people very uncomfortable to hear all of the different details. Right. The point I think is that even with my being raised in what was at that point thought of as you know progressive, the new possibility for American culture, I still carried with me all kinds of cultural conditioning and I, it wasn't until four years ago that I really began to understand the level of cultural conditioning that still had me being, you know, having white fragility and not understanding, you know, the real impact of, of you know, slavery and all of those things, even though I literally was raised to try to understand it. But there's this piece that happens for people that are that came from that area and from that time is they think they they knew it all. You know, you, you, we had the Rainbow Coalition, as it were. And, you know, I met some Black Panthers and the story I made up about myself was I understood really what the cultural issues were for BIPOC people. But it wasn't true. And it wasn't until I went into a school called the Remember Institute, which is held by and administered by BIPOC people who are devoted to shifting the awareness of, of white people in a loving, challenging way that I really began to understand the depth of the impact of this on people of color um, and, you know, indigenous cultures in America. 
I was open to it because I was raised to believe that it was an essential part of recreating the world. It's, it's, if we were really going to change the world, we had to really get to the point where it wasn't dominated by men, it wasn't dominated by white culture, or even in some instances, capitalism. Um, and what I've come to understand for myself is that, you know, I'm a, a strange animal with weird spots because I'm very, very leftist in some ways and very liberal in, in some ways, but I'm also really conservative in others. So I don't like the Federal Reserve. I don't like taxes. <laughs> and I, I, I'm also a free enterprise economic person. I believe in the possibility of an individual's right to fire up their life and come up with a way to be in the world that has economic power based on their individual tastes and their individual creativity. But I don't like what I'll call crony capitalism or corporate dominated capitalism, where all of the opportunities are managed from the top down and markets are controlled by powerful entities that right. don't really have free enterprise as their main sort of goal for people. So it's an odd place to be in. in okay, we see it differently, Mark, that yeah. in crony capitalism, those folks who pull, manage, and control the levers of power try to sell and mandate the definition of free enterprise as that which they encompass and execute upon. And they sell that story to their constituents from the political lens so that they can always constantly believe that that dream is for them and they'll achieve it, but they can't ever get a seat at the table. I would just want to say thank you for saying that. And I'm virtually shaking your hand. My brother, it's great to meet you at the table because I tell you right now, we are very, very, very similar in that regard. I, in fact, my daughter and I debate over it often enough. I love capitalism. And she's like, Daddy, you can't. You just can't. It's evil. I said, I think perhaps what you want to say is, Capitalism in its execution, as we viewed it historically, and how it's been, for want of a better word, abused by those in power, is what you dislike. But at its heart, it's supposed to tell you, me, and those of us of a like mind, that if we can harness the power of capital, take our ideas, and like you said, fire them up, then perhaps we can do a thing. And if we do a thing, and it allows other people to come to the table, to be employed by whatever it is we're trying to generate, and that is a good thing. It generates revenue. On the same token, you can look at me and go, well, I'm not going to attach my name to an ideological theme because I firmly believe that everyone deserves a seat at the table. And sometimes the revenue that I can generate should, in my mind, be utilized through social structures in order to help uplift others. Because I'll tell you, Mark, and I think you might agree, or I'll tell the story like this. I went to UGA graduated, love Ayn Rand, thought it was great. Atlas Shrugged was one of the most fascinating things I'd ever read. And, you know, I believed in the, the, the power of the man to, to hold up the weight of the world and do great things. And I came back home and I was like, poor people stink on ice because they just don't know what it is they're doing. And they need to pick themselves up by their bootstraps. But, and I've said this on this show before, um, you can't tell a person to pick themselves up by their bootstraps when they don't know what a bootstrap is or even what a boot is, or where to go to find one. And if they found one, they probably wouldn't know how to put it on, lace up, and launch out. So that is where a little bit of assistance is required. And some folks might want to call that socialism, but I think you would also agree, in our wider world, 
folks don't really know what socialism is. It comes in various forms and ways. But, you know, I hate the phrase distribution of wealth. I like to think of it as the distribution of capital for the express purposes of upholding society. I hate taxes, just like you. Not a fan. Um, some might call me a social liberal and a fiscal conservative. But again, that makes me have to fit into a category. I just like to say, and I'm thinking you might be the same, Mark. I'm an aspiring critical thinker in all veins. Because, you know, on any given subject, you may left, you may right. But what you want to do, perhaps, is what's best for everyone at the table. Does that make sense? It totally makes sense. And it's in alignment with my values and who I want to be in the world. Awesome. awesome. What I'd like to do is poke a little bit at the, le the word capitalism. Because I use free enterprise very consciously because I think capitalism in and of itself is actually flawed. And it goes back to the dominating aspect of who would become slave owners and people who were the moneyed elites of Europe who then dominated the American, you know, colonists and colonies. And even the concepts of color were invented as a way to manage, you know, slaves. We didn't even have white and black until we got this thing like, well, let's make the poor people that are white into something that will feel elevated and give them a sense of elevation. And then they'll in turn do our bidding to keep these other people down. And we're creating separation. And that key, that's the key. Most of the labels that we, we operate on in this culture are designed to create separation because separation allows there to be a false dichotomy and a control narrative that can be leveraged to pit us against each other. And I think that's the fundamental theme of this podcast when I started to think about it at a general level. And so how do we get out of this trap? How do we get out of the dualistic, polarized us versus them mentality and start to realize who we really are in terms of human beings on the planet? And so I think, like I said before, the idea of human beings being allowed, having the room to find their creative power in the form of being hardworking people who produce things and then perhaps help others who help them, i.e. employment. But outside this kind of closed, weird thing that we've come to call capitalism, which has a very top-down control matrix aspect to it. Absolutely. And, and so I'm... I, I also am not a communist. Like, I don't like the idea of central control by the government, no, right? No. And that's what's the beauty of what lives in the soul of the Constitution. It's a flawed document in many, many ways, but its aspiration is to create the possibility that together we can all debate and discuss and come to consensus in a way that allows us to prosper in peace and freedom. And I think that's a brilliant concept, even though we're currently not doing a very good job of it. You're right. Absolutely. And I love how you say that. I tell folks all the time that the sacred document at the heart of this great nation, and it is great, please believe that, is the, the concept of a piece of rooted evil that's at the very founding of this nation. But we can look at that, internalize that, analyze that, and understand that because we're all flawed, but still... It does not take away from the fact that those who we call the founding fathers, flawed though they may be, you know, some of them, you know, um, to use a strong word because of what the concept of slavery is, evil in some respect, 
They were products of their time. The words do fit, but what they kinned, what they came up with was something I think beyond even their understanding because that is the power of the document. It crafted something that to your point, we can all invest in. We can all build upon and grow from it. It is a very, very powerful document. And I know there are so many different perspectives on its status. The constructionists, those who believe that it doesn't evolve, I, I simply can't buy that because without, you know, and, and I think the evidence is irrefutable, as the document evolves and the country grows and time goes by, things come up. We build things, we create things. And those core founding laws at the heart of our nation have to be viewed through the filter of what we've built and our social experiences. And it takes critical thinking minds to try to understand it. And it's never one-sided. Like you said, you know, you, you have to consider these things. It's it's all perspectives thrown into the crucible of conflict, positive, hopefully. And what gets burned away are the pieces that don't work, right? And what comes from that would hopefully be a policy, a social structure, something where we recognize what happened in the past, but now we've charted a better path for ourselves going forward. And I see all of that flowing from that document. So many folks don't, right? They just look at it as a, a staid piece of paper that just can't change, can't evolve. And it has to be that way. But by nature, <laughs> we're not just that way. We're so many different ways, honestly. I agree. And there's a factor of the mental oppression the limitation of the context of social debate that has people not recognizing the fluidity of that document or what it would take to render unto our social fabric the new possibility that's born in each generation. The level of work is very daunting, especially now with the things like Citizens United ruling and, and the way that the various powers that be have constructed a very, very calcified, rigid structure that impedes the flow of the real brilliance of the common thought, the commonality of all of us. And I think if we do two things, we, we go back and we look at the Iroquois Confederacy and the indigenous populations of North America and the wisdom that we encountered when Europeans came over here, there was something lost when we missed out on what they had to teach us and impose the ideas of capitalism upon the land. But there was an attempt, there was some recognition of their wisdom that became the constitution. I mean, that's why we copied the Iroquois Confederacy is to, in order to try to bring that wisdom forward, there was some recognition of it. But over time, the dominator makes it matrix that profit breeds when profit is all that is considered, tends to create the kinds of solidifications that impede the flow of development. You could say spiritual development if you want, but it doesn't even have to be about that. Right. It's just like feeding yourself the wrong foods means your circulation goes badly and your flexibility becomes lessened and over time the body becomes unhealthy. Now as we look towards the future, one of the things that defines America is the ideals of innovation, of creating a new possibility and we have done a great job of that and in fact it's one of the reasons we're still surviving economically and we still have the status that we have. And we're at an apex, we're at a cultural crossroads right now where 
If we allow the division and we allow the polar polarization of our personal comments to continue, we're going to end up fighting each other and the rich and powerful are going to continue to be able to dominate the innovation practices and it'll go only according to their vision. And honestly, it's still a very white supremacist vision. A lot of this stuff is flowing from old families that want to maintain the dominance of their lineage. And they don't understand the process or the benefit of what could happen if we allowed a lot broader, more flexible type of iteration to come into the democratic process. And so when I look to the future, I have ideas about how we could shift the method and means by which we adjudicate these problems and not lose the powerful, powerful means to create an amazing new possibility. We don't have to burn it to the ground in order to reform it, but we do need to go to democracy 2.0. And I have some ideas about what that is. Before we jump into that, because you're getting me excited, Mark, I'm loving the thought. I just had a couple of examples that I wanted to throw in my head and, and, and uh, throw out of my head and throw directly at you. Because again, I think it's something that you, you will resonate with. And um, listeners, I don't think I've said this one before, and some of you won't like it, but it's the God's honest truth. And I've seen it firsthand, right? In my time here in Atlanta, as you know, um, a person that myself, I hold several patents, written several books, you know, I've put myself out and I've done, you know, uh, I think marginally well. But one uh, person I I learned from, wonderful guy, he's a person of color, you know, older black guy. He, he said this to me and I didn't like it, but as time went by, I internalized it because as I went from one, you know, uh, venue of wealth and, and, and attainment, uh, chambers, commerce societies and groups of that, where I was very welcome, um, closing the loop on possibilities just didn't happen. And, you know, we can say it's for one reason or another. I still never really got to the root of it. I had a white mentor who said, and, and I think you, you might have, you, you'll feel this one, Mark, and you might have heard it before. He said, Derek, part of the problem for you, and he got this because he heard it from someone else, and this was a senior executive. He said, you know, he, does, he, he doesn't talk like he looks. Right. And my mentor said, well, exactly. What do you mean? Well, does he know the stuff that he's talking about? Or is, how does he know that? And, and why does he act like he's like he's so smart? And of course, I was completely taken aback because I thought I was just presenting my best self in order to try and build something together. And my mentor told me, he said, I don't want you to change a thing, but I want you to understand that that is what you're up against. That And that was my white mentor. He said, that's what you're up against. That guy hears you and something inside clicks to the negative. You know, he doesn't like the way you talk. He doesn't like the words that you use. In fact, the comment back was he uses too many big words and he talks too well. I was like, well, what the hell is that? You know, I'm trying to close a deal here. He's like, no, I, I don't like you. The, the other person said, he, he asked me, he says, well, are you a preacher? Now, some may think that that's a compliment, but there are quite a few of us who are like, well, um, I will say, you know, I was uh, raised Roman Catholic and Southern Baptist at the same time. So you have to imagine that was very challenging. One weekend, I'm at Money Earning Mount Vernon Baptist Church in Noonan, Georgia for five hours 
if you fall asleep, the woman behind you would knock you upside the head. And, you know, and that was just that. And then the other weekend, I'm at St. Paul of the Cross. Uh, sit, stand, genuflect. Sit, stand, genuflect. Sit, stand, genuflect. Well, now we proclaim the mystery of faith. It was a lot. Um, but yeah. I say all that to say, you know, I, I do have an abiding belief in God, just might not necessarily be the same God that everyone else believes in. And I have faith and understanding and trust in many of my agnostic and atheist friends. Another thing that comes out of the Constitution. And, and I know I'm rambling here, but I'm putting it all together to say that all of these things came together as in me as a person, a black man trying to do a thing. And, and I had a friend and you've probably heard this kind of thing too, Mark. When I say she has a billion dollar idea, she has a billion dollar idea. And this is the whole point of why I brought, wanted to bring this up. That black mentor that I mentioned that first said, Derek, you need to understand one thing. And when you look at a LeBron James or uh, folks probably don't know this, Google this guy, Stan O'Neill, who used to actually run Merrill Lynch before it was folded in the Bank of America. You know, people of color out there that are tremendously successful and some that you don't necessarily know who are multimillionaires out there. They never got to the table without the benefit of a white man. And he had to say white man because it's not a white woman. It's not just a general white person. It is a white man of means who, as you mentioned earlier, pulls and controls the levers of power. And again, like I said, you know, a lot of you guys won't like that. And I certainly didn't believe it. I was like, and I'm be free. I thought it was bullshit, right? I mean, you know, you, you get it done. You can get to the table. You can make it happen. And then it was until him and another white person told me that, Derek, uh, America's not there yet. You may look at it and think it's like that, but it's not. And if you don't know how to make friends, if you don't know how to connect with those people who see you in a certain way, then they won't bring you to the table. The money flows right through those hands. And they keep it from their own. They keep it from their own. Like you said, the separation of white folks in certain classes. And if you think you can jump over all of that and get to the table where the capital is there for you to do what you want to do, you're wrong. And I tell you, left a hole in me so deep, so wide, Mark. It still hurts today when I think about it. But I've internalized it as a truth, one that I have to accept. And one that I most certainly often want to make sure I share, not to hold people back or make people of color feel down. Because again, you look out, you see the successes every day. It's just that we have to understand what's arrayed against us and find people of like minds like you that would say, okay, look, dude, you got to go that way. Talk to that person, stand up, step back, take a break, be ready. As Oprah says, you know, be prepared. Luck is the collision of preparedness and opportunity at the crossroads of life. And if you're ready when it happens, then it will come off for you. Okay, and now I'm going to shut up because we're supposed to be letting you talk. And I got on my horse there. I'm sorry. <laughs> Terry, I am so glad you got on your horse. Like this, <laughs> I'm getting chills just listening to this because what we're really getting at is the, the deep crux of the challenge that we face in the 21st century. And if we're really going to progress and make it to the next level of innovation, where we can really foster global peace through the ideas of an innovation, initiative, and personal freedom, we have to overcome the old system that is designed poorly for this century. And it was, in some ways, it was designed really wrongly prior to this. I mean, if you really want to unpack 
the 2000 year history since the the powers of Kemet were really what had everything bringing science forward and then de- unpack how that was co-opted and, and people were forgotten and written out of history in order to form a mental control matrix over human beings. You can become lost quickly in the fear and resentment of oppressive power, but that's part of how they keep us down. The secondary piece is that a lot of those folks that are operating at the 1% of 1% level, the gatekeepers, if you will, the investment bankers who have the capital, they're actually also suffering from the mental conditioning and the mental slavery of that legacy of that of the eons of conditioning and context that's designed to create fear around this issue it's you're raised in it it's it's passed down from generation to generation as trauma and unpacking that and deconstructing it is a difficult proposition but it's possible I believe it's possible. And that faith is what keeps me getting up every day, showing up and and being willing to have the difficult discussions with people about how we unwind this. And I believe that even people that were raised inside the most um, lofty and exclusive parts of the European hierarchy can begin to understand what the human being is really designed for and what we're really designed to do on this planet together. And I think one of the interesting things about my biography and understanding the context of the 60s and what happened when freedom and multiculturalism broke out from the United States and started to spread around the world through music and through marijuana and through other things was that the power structure now saw that it could easily fall apart because the truth is we outnumber them so vastly and if we simply change our behavior and change our minds one person at a time it becomes unstoppable they cannot stop it from happening and so the social engineering that's going on is designed to keep us from realizing that true power of unity and of consensus. And it's the way our system is structured. I mean, just look, we're still voting on Tuesdays. Yeah. (laughs) Right. I mean, that's just the most obvious thing you could say to anyone like, hello, why aren't we voting on Saturday? So that grandma and everybody in the family can get a ride and get down there. And maybe it might run into Sunday because there's a lot of us. And you know, what's wrong with that? You know, so and and, oh my God, it's like, Mark, you know, you, you say that, and again, you just got to pause and think about it and look around at folks and, and, and go like, wait, hey, hey, hey. And we're like, Derek, hey, what? Super Tuesday? Really? And you think about how in Brazil, they just locked their thing down on Sunday, took all that time to get it. It was the weekend, man. When wow. you have extra time, it's so logical. And yet here we are scrambling. Can I get time off from work? I can't afford to take time off from work. Will you get there before the polls close? After you get off from work, we could relieve all of that. Oh, and to your point, let's make it Saturday, not Sunday, because folks have to church. We say that as a verb. You have to church. But if you start on Saturday and it flows into Sunday, then you've done a good thing. We've made it easier for us. Oh, oh my God. Thank you for bringing that one up. So there are ways to heal this problem. And it's once we've 
figure out this new code, this new possibility, it's going to become a global phenomenon. Like America was a global phenomenon for a long time, especially around the end of World War II. Exactly. And there was still the propagation of some of these mechanisms of control through economic power. But the underlying principle, because the root of it originated in indigenous culture, the Iroquois Confederacy was copied. An unconscious part of that was encoded into the possibility of what it could look like to be a free planet. Like my, my hope, my deepest aspiration is there could be a United States of the world in the sense that sovereignty could be determined on an individual level and consensus could build through the use of technology. And we could have open debate and serious discussions about how to re-engineer society so that resource management isn't consumed by conflict and war. I mean, when we look at how much resources go into the methods of, of killing, the killing. machines of killing, it's so insane. And any person who has any sense of the deity of the divine can see that that's just not who we are at a root level. We're not built for that, but somehow, We've fallen into oh, this really. dichotomy of us versus them and fear. And love is the answer. Love is actually much more powerful. Together, we can create amazing things. Even Darwin is misquoted. He said, I think, twice in, the, in, in that book that, that competition is the way. But cooperation was mentioned over 100 times. And this idea that somehow battling each other creates the highest level of excellence is not true. What we find is that cooperation, when we work together, that's when we get the most out of things. Like if you just look at SpaceX, for example, yeah. Elon's not out there by himself building that stuff. No, It's a whole bunch of people who have united behind a principle that's bigger than money. Yeah, they're all getting paid. And there's an economic piece to it, but they are actually motivated to work those long hours and struggle to make those things happen by a higher principle, a why that transcends the economics of it. And when we all begin to recognize that this is actually the fabric of our life together is a why that transcends money, we will start to realize that we can make things much more efficient. And that we can share things that need to be shared and we can have things as individuals that we create for ourselves that are brilliant and beautiful and afford us an amount of joy that is beyond our current understanding. Like there's no reason anyone should suffer. There's no reason that people of color should be held down that four out of five men of color have not been able to perform in the role that they need to be as the family Design. And that is a crime against humanity. And the people don't like to talk about it. Yeah. Um, I listened to a man who was ostracized recently from Twitter and other things because he said something that was, quote, unacceptable to people. But I took the time to actually listen to what he had to say. And I came to understand that there's a deeper person in there who cares deeply about his culture and about the, the people of this nation and who wants to believe in the possibility of getting it better. And yeah, he's flawed. He's made some mistakes in the way he speaks about things. But when I listened to him and I heard his heart, I understood what was really going on in there beyond the sound bites, beyond the idea of we must control this person's access to information because if we don't, He's going to say things that are going to change the way it works. Mm. You can't have that. 
Wow. It, it, you you wouldn't mind being a little more descriptive of what he's talking said. about. Yay. Okay. Just want to be sure. <laughs> I'm talking about Kanye you West. Just want to go ahead and put it out there. Yep. Right. Yes. So I folks, wanted my, my thoughts to be expressed before the name, before people's yeah. minds went shunk. Because right? that's exactly what will happen. That's exactly right? what happened. It's interesting that you say that. Um, I'm driving home this weekend with a friend of mine and we're in the car talking and he just asked me, you know, what are my opinions on what Ye said? And I told him, um, often enough, and it's unfortunate, you know, folks will look at the vehicle that the message is in and judge the message based upon that, right? So, you know, and also, however the message generates or who generates it, if they would be of a means, you know, you got to be unfortunately critical in this day and age in our society as to how you put the message out there. Otherwise, you will be prejudged and then judged and then judged again. Do I think Kanye West meant to try and say something that was much more globally understood? I think so. Um, he just doesn't have... the. It's just like when he said years ago when folks thought he was on the other side of this ideological divide, he stood there on live TV and said, George Bush hates black people. Now, some of us looked at that and went, oh, my God. Oh, my God. He's he's done this this era, you know, this this crazy, you know, irreparable thing on live television. And now what's next? The world is going to end. I think, honestly, if you looked at him then and saw it in his eyes. You could tell that there was a lot of manic pressured energy and emotion beyond behind that statement. But to your point, I do think it came from a deep place of caring. All of his actions tend to me seem to come from a deep place of caring. How he exhibits that and his condition around how he does it is how we is how we view it. It gets filtered through that prism. And you know, whether he's taking something or not, I don't know. But I agree with you. He uh he has a deep and abiding love for people. You know, I think that's at the heart of his music. That's where you see the genius of Ye. It comes straight out of that. All of the other things that come out, sometimes they're like machine gun fire and they can, and, and like machine gun fire, they can hit all over the place. But if we don't have the patience to try and see the man for who he is, then we go straight to judgment. And doing that in general is, you know, that's part and parcel, unfortunately, for human nature. And we miss stuff when we do that. To your point, you listened to the man, you went deep on him, and you saw that message beyond what he said. Most of us don't do that generally. And that's what I was telling my friend. I said, you know, he threw that stuff out there. And I know, and like him, he said, well, you know, I don't really even think he was being anti-Semitic. I think he was just trying to say something and put it out there so folks could have an understanding. I went, well, you got to know a lot of people aren't going to see it like that. But the devil always lives in the details. And unfortunately, as human beings, we don't take the time to look at them. And that's where we get caught up. Well, I think oratory skill matters. Communication skills matter. It's huge. And it is anti-Semitic to group people together. Yes. I can say something very clearly that groups people together and all of the brilliance, the moderate brilliance that I've expressed in this <laughs> conversation would be thrown away because of that lack of skill. Totally. And it's really clear that Ye suffers from that. And, and all of his brilliant points are now lost to everyone else who can't see beyond the veil of that. And it's, yeah. it's, it's a 
tragedy on two levels. It's a tragedy for the commons and for the dialogue that we might be having as a culture, but it's also a tragedy for him, his family, and then, and then finally, for the people whom he named, who have now built a shield from the criticism and the critique that he wanted them to have. And if we want to examine that critique a little better, we could look to another African-American man who was much better at articulating that critique, which is Mr. Prince Rogers Nelson. And he was able to speak about the structure through the lens of the way the corporate structure works against artists and the way that media is dominated by marketing and enterprise that feels like top-down slavery. He put it on his face. Right? (laughs) And and that was a much more digestible, much more um, articulable way to discuss the issues that I think Ye was trying to discuss. And so when we label things and we group people together in these broad labels, it's not only a mistake for us individually, but it's a mistake for the evolution of the dialogue, of the yeah. commonality of our all of our evolution of thinking. Because the truth is, we do need to look at who controls these corporations and who the people are and how they behave and what the contracts look like and how they might keep certain classes of people locked in unfair labor practices and harvest their work for their own gain, for the other people's gain. And that's a reasonable debate to have. Absolutely. If you bring in their ethnicity, if you bring in their religious identification, you cause a disassociation to occur in the dialogue. And that's unfortunate. And and, and it's it's unforgivable, like literally, there's a whole class of people like I was talking to a very close friend of mine whom I've known since I was a teenager who also mm-hmm. grew up at Berkeley and he was unwilling to hear this conversation from me. He was like, no, there's no way. There's nothing that man has to say that I want to hear. Yeah. So there was no nuance available in that conversation. That's powerful. That's it's huge. It's so huge. I'm, and I'm so glad to hear you say that and use your friend as an example, because, you, you know, Mark, that that is very very real and it's funny because even as you're talking about yay right in contrast to prince i think back on how in ancient times you know um what's the story right the the guy that prophesizes or the person who has extra wisdom is kind of crazy right mm-hmm. the, the person who you know these gems fall out of that man or woman's mouth in between all of this other stuff and that was a real thing right you know Folks would look at that and go, but we have to be able to discern. We have to have discernment, so to speak, in order to get to the truth in the middle of all that other stuff. You you, you talk about yay, and in my mind, I kind of go, yeah, you know, it, I see uh, I see similarities, right? Yay has these these thoughts, and some of them can and, and have been, you know, really salient powerful things to say but it comes in the middle of all this other stuff and to your point and i know plenty of folks of color who are like this right now he put on a maga hat it's over it's done he can't say anything else and i can just barely listen to his music well you're missing out on a lot right you're missing out on a lot and i think to your point we have to be able to lean into discomfort and have the dialogue you can't quit you can't step away. 
And unfortunately for, for Kanye, uh, it seems to me, as far as I can understand, understand, he does have a condition that he doesn't manage well. And but also a lot of his brilliance might come out of his desire to continue to mismanage it, because when he does, then perhaps something gets clouded or or um, or it's tamped down. Right. We, we know that happens, too. So if he lets himself be who he is, then you get that you get true statements, you get an articulation of a given situation, such as how the, the music industry is built. I did a whole episode on that. And to your point, it was it, it's like black people produce as we ever have. But you've got to stay in that box. You Again, you don't get access to the, the levers of power. You can't have any control, but we'll give you a lot of money to produce. In fact, in the beginning, it was you don't get a lot of money at all. You just produce. But now you can become a multimillionaire, even a billionaire. But you still need to stay in that box. You step out of that box, we're going to bust you over the head. And clearly, Kanye's pretty resilient. He's getting knocked over the head a whole lot. But to your point, in the midst of all the noise, we're missing something. And that happens a lot. It's often not till years later that we really begin to recognize as a group, as a culture, the brilliance of a man or a woman that has something like that to say. And a lot of people want to look at Bob Marley's life and be like, I love Bob Marley, man. He stands for everything I do, one love, yeah, all that. Mm-hmm. But at the time, Bob Marley in 1969 and 1972 and 1975 he had dreadlocks on and he was a dirty, you know, yeah. from Jamaica. And I'm, I, he's talking about things that are like uh, against my values. He's, he wants to bring down the system. He's, you know, you know, and when you actually look at Bob's reality, you see that this person stood for revolution, revolution of the soul, revolution of music, a revolution in this political sense too like the whole thing and the one love peace concert where he brings the two rival factions together in jamaica yeah. at that concert and unites the people of jamaica but he has no desire to pick any side in the politics you know and he did it after being shot by someone who tried to get him to endorse one of the politi- the politicians at the time Insane. And he was a revolutionary. He speaks from sort of close to the Che Guevara end of things. But because we deify his music and think of him in terms of marijuana, peace and love culture, we some people miss the message. But when you get deeper into what the expression of Jamaican music has at its core, which is rooted in poverty and oppression, you begin to see how that can really speak to the larger problems we have. And Bob took his money and put it where his mouth is. Like he funneled money to the Rhodesian rebels and made Zimbabwe a country. Mm. Like Bob spent money to help overthrow the crown in what was Rhodesia and became Zimbabwe. Bob really stood for something, right? At the time, people didn't see him that way. They thought he was dangerous. In fact, the CIA has a big file on him. (laughs) But now... Everyone sees his wisdom on a global scale and they understand what it really meant. And it's almost getting, you know, wa- washed, whitewashed what he really stood for in certain ways. Same with John Lennon. You know, John Lennon was killed. Um, Peter Tosh, who was even more revolutionary than Bob, the guy who shot Peter Tosh was literally in jail the week before. And Peter was going to buy 
BBC Radio Jamaica. He was in process. It was almost in escrow. And the powers that be let this dude out of jail who came and shot him mm. because they did not want to see Peter in control of the one radio station in Jamaica because Peter represented an even deeper commitment to liberation and revolution. Revolution. That's right. And what the CIA did to the Black Panther leadership. You know, I mean, that's a that's a that's a masterclass on in, in, on this on organizational destruction. <laughs> and boy, were they good at it. You're absolutely right. Now, boy. here's the key. They can't actually stop the powerful evolution of God's people. Because you can't put that light out. Just like in Star Wars, when Princess Leia says, "You, no matter how tight you squeeze, Vader, we will just slip through your fingers. fingers. <laughs> and so there's this beauty in the recognition that each of us has a part to play. If we keep the fire of imagination and freedom burning in our hearts and are willing to step into a commitment to our values, to listen to each other, right. to debate rationally, to see beyond the labels, like, I don't even want to say what I'm about to say, but I'm going to say it. I yes. voted for Obama. I voted for Clinton. I voted for Biden. And when Donald Trump got elected and he killed the Pan-Pacific uh, financial agreement, I was ecstatic because that was another form of globalist control over economics. Very true. And he did some other things, which I don't like to admit, that I appreciated and I think he does do things, and I think Ye also did some things which give cover to and embolden fascism. And my grandfather did not fight World War II. My ancestors did not fight the rise of fascism for us to sit idly by and take that and allow that to continue. Exactly. And so I don't, I don't think we should give cover to those kinds of toxic things. And so I think when we talk about this broad spectrum of not being divided, we also have to say that there are values where we have boundaries. There are limits to what we can accept in terms of the way that we run our social comments. But the general rule in my book is that we can co-create a society that allows us the personal freedom to choose who we wanna worship, to choose to what we want to read and watch and listen to, and to choose how we speak and where we speak, and not have the government telling us what we can and cannot do in that arena. And that is based on the idea of trusting in the intellectual and heartfelt and soulfelt evolution of human consciousness. And I have devoted my life to the proposition that we can do this better, that we can find a way forward. And that was given to me by my parents people of Berkeley and the whole idea that something new could happen. Mark, I'm sitting here and like, there's so many things I want to say, but I, I, I don't want to, I'm not going to erode what you just said. Cause I love it. Something new can happen. And I don't think I firmly believe beyond the fact that we should look at that as aspirational. I would like to think that what you just said in a world like that, it's a foregone conclusion. If we hold fast, those of us that can, 
to some of the concepts that you just laid out, that there are natural boundaries, values, things that we know we should not step beyond and we can all recognize that. Also, as you called out, I too voted along the same lines. I too actually benefited from the tax cuts. <laughs> I, I too recognize um, economic global assassination through policies and procedures that put folks into certain classes for the benefit of just a few. And it's a good thing when we don't do that. But we also need to figure out how, when we want to expand and grow, that we can help those areas of the world and our areas at home. And, and, and I just have to throw this one in, Mark. There, there are places right here in Atlanta, right, that could benefit from some of those dollars and can create the kind of innovation you're talking about. And they live in at-risk environments. And if you send the dollar their way, there's unfortunately folks who are very jaded and they put folks in monolithic groups. They call that socialism or to your point, communism instead of an investment. Where if you do that and you look at some of the ideas these kids have, they can come up with new concepts and new models and new businesses and new products that will, at the end of the day, if you really just want to be an economic want, may in the very uh, summation of it, put a whole percentage point on our gross domestic product. In a country of over 300 million people, that innovation, that type of innovation does live, but it's eroded, like you said, when we put ourselves in these box and we live by these categories and we commit ourselves to economic activity that is born out through war, which does not speak to our very true nature and our spirituality. I firmly believe that too. So I say all that to say, Mark, powerful message. I'm right there in line with you. And I definitely, definitely want to thank you for etching the edges with us today. It has been an outstanding conversation. And of course, as ever, you know, you said your thing. I just got through saying my thing on it, but I got to give you the final word and you have to tell folks where to go to connect with you, please. All right. We must find the way forward. And the way forward begins with hope. And hope lies in that the person who's hearing my voice realize that they have something important to contribute. And if they take up the cause of becoming the best person they are, that we can change this thing. And there is a way. I have developed a way. I'm thinking of new ways of doing this thing, like I alluded to before. I'm not going to go into details about it right now. The point is leadership. How we lead involves compassion, powerful listening, and powerful communication skills. And that's where it all starts at the individual level. And from there together, I believe that there's hope for the future. And I will be the man who takes that to my grave. I will embody that till the day I die. And I would love it if everyone else found their path through hope, innovation, and love for humanity. Now, as far as getting a hold of me, it's sort of not really what this conversation's been about. Like I'm an executive coach. I'm a men's coach. I work with men to create more intimacy in their lives. And I work with executives to create more productivity and better leadership in their, in their corporate cultures through some of these principles. So knowing that you can go to markwentcoaching.com may not do anything to move the conversation along the lines that we've been moving it, but if you enjoyed working, hearing from me and you'd like to work with someone who wants to bring out the best in you, then that's the way to do it is to, to ring me up, 
There's a free call listed on my website. You can have an hour with me and we'll talk about what your goals are and what you want to get to. And if it's a better relationship or you want to have more power in your work life or you want to just be a plain, be a better human being, I'm available for that. That's what I do for a living. So it's Mark Went, M-A-R-C-W-E-N-D-T, coaching.com. Love to hear from you. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you so much, Mark. It's been outstanding, my brother. Thank you, Derek. Hope, innovation, love. Don't think there is a better way to say it, to describe it. What I now firmly believe we must aspire to be and swiftly become. This has truly been a powerful conversation, leaning in deep on what divides us. Necessary illumination without equivocation. Thank you again, Mark, for etching the edges with us today. And of course, we have to thank you, our audience, for taking the time to listen to our podcast. We hope you've enjoyed it. So please, like and subscribe. Tell your family, tell your friends. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Etch the Edges. And don't forget to visit our website at EtchTheEdges.com. Check us out. Join the movement. Express your commitment to the cause. Cause for a better America, a better world, where we all can stand together at the mountaintop. Do it for America. Indeed, do it for a better world. Be good to yourselves and each other. We'll see you next time. Thank you.